Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Sasha Strauss, who is the founder and managing director of Innovation Protocol, which is an award-winning brand strategy consultancy. With integrated staff in LA, SF, and New York City, clients include Disney, Google, Amgen, PayPal, and on and on and on. Sasha is also an MBA professor working at UC Irvine, UCLA, and also USC. He's also an international speaker who talks on branding and has given talks to 200 plus professional organizations, 50 plus companies, 30 plus industries in over 20 countries. Let's just say he knows a little bit about branding. And of course, we dive deeper into branding, brand strategy, how he got started with all of this, how he works with clients, how he helps them, all of that in this episode. So incredibly excited for you to listen to this episode, truly a gem, and I can't wait for you to hear it. The show notes for this episode and all episodes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And if you have a minute, I would really appreciate you leaving a rating and review for the show over on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Sasha Strauss, the Managing Director and Founder of Innovation Protocol. Sasha, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, please. Yeah, happy to have you on, make the time for this and talk all things branding and strategy, all so many different topics I want to go through. But first, how did you develop an interest in branding and strategy in the first place? You know, the shortest answer is that I was a very sensitive child. I'm a sensitive person now, but I'm an adult, so I've got thicker skin. <laughs> but I was such a sensitive child that anytime a, a message was broadcast, it didn't matter if it was in a religious hall or in a magazine or television show, uh, I was extremely impacted by it. And so the only way I could protect myself was to get in the business of understanding those messages. And how does that evolve from you know that interest where you're so impacted by it to a point of making a career fully out of it? Because that's a whole other level, obviously. Well, you can think about how moved I was by yeah. all these campaigns, right? It didn't matter if it was about picking up trash or buying a product and moved by those campaigns. And then when you eventually get into the understanding of like, okay, someone wrote this. Someone knew that you were going to be hungry at 4 p.m. on Tuesday, right. and they figured out what message would would connect to you and engage you. And when I started getting into the work, it really helped me, uh, I guess, understand the origin, understand why certain words were being used, why certain medium were being used. And it helped me know my space. Now, getting into a profession of it was, wow, this communication is so powerful. It's so powerful, it's affecting me. Imagine if organizations that were doing great things, changing the world, educating the masses, imagine if they could communicate better. And that's what compelled me to get into the business. And once you had gotten in like early on, I mean, what, besides just working with other clients, like what were some of those things you did to learn more about the space to evolve and like learn your own like messaging? Well, you can imagine it's a business of communicators. And so all they're gosh darn it doing is communicating. And so there was, before there were even such thing as podcasts, there were branders and marketers just producing content, sharing stuff on the web. And I also made sure to work for a lot of different companies. For example, when I was an undergrad at UC Irvine, during my five years as a student, I worked for seven different companies. And all of them were in the advertising, marketing, public relations worlds. So I got a really integrated observation. Like I got to understand how each of those compartments work and how they harmonize and create impact. And that's where I eventually, in 1997 or whatever it was, said, wait a minute. Okay, advertising is the is to like 
show a message and try to get an audience who may not know you yet to pay attention. It's kind of a shock mechanism. Whereas marketing tends to be more engaging. There's more words. It's a brochure. It's a website. It's thicker. It's deeper. Then realized that public relations was like, oh, you already have someone as an employee. You already have someone as a shareholder. Don't you lose them. They're so important. Stay engaged with them. So I saw advertising, marketing, and public relations as mechanisms of distributing a message. But I distinctly recall walking into my boss's office in like 1999 saying, hey, I like all of this distribution of message. I want to talk about the origination of the message. Where is it coming from? Why are we saying these things? Who is this audience and how is it going to emotionally relate to them? And that became such a fulfilling quest because like you mentioned, I'm crossing categories all the time. Yeah. Imagine one day understanding like, how does someone choose their trash company? Right. You know, like like really emotional about it. And let me tell you, if you meet people who have had trash problems They are emotional about it. Mm -hmm. So understanding their decision-making process, understanding their buying behavior, fascinating one day and the next day getting to work, uh, I don't know, maybe for a big uh, lawyering society. We were one of our clients was the LA County Bar Association, the largest association of lawyers in the world. Imagine, just imagine going from trash company one day to bar association the next. And it's so fulfilling because you're really getting to the root of, well, I can't help them say who they are and why they matter if I don't understand who they are and why they matter. Right. So you get these permissions to deep dive. And with that, so obviously with your company innovation protocol, working with many different clients, I assume, how did you form that process, that structure, you know, that behind so you can apply that to all these different types of, you know, industries? So back to being an emotional person. You can imagine when I was working early on in my career, I would produce a concept and I would present it and the client or the boss would just hate it, you know, <laughs> or say, I, you know, how, how could you come up with this? Don't you understand that organization A, B or C had already done this? And, you know, I couldn't deny that they were right. I, I thought I was being employed to innovate, but, you know, innovations without context are worthless. Sure. And so what I basically created really early on in my career was a method that would protect my answers. I'll give you the simplest, biggest takeaway, okay? 25 years ago, if you wanted to study your competitors, doesn't matter what business you're in, you want to understand the communication and behavior of organizations maybe selling to the same customer or selling in the same environment. It was very costly. Think about it. You had to like go into these stores. You had to try the product. You had to call customer service. You had to go to the trade show. And now you can run a competitive analysis remotely. You can collect all the insights, the communications, the behaviors of every organization functioning in your category from a laptop at Starbucks. Yeah. Well, you can see that, all right, if you're starting a business and you're going to be building a brand, not knowing what your competitors are saying or doing, that's on you. That's on you. So we live in this really incredible time where building a brand strategically can be done. It can be done. And so to answer your question, how did I create a process? Well, there's a competitive analysis process. There's an audience assessment process. Who's the buyer? How are they behaving? There's an influencer assessment. Who are they reading? What white papers do they consume? What analysts are informing their choices? And by Kind of collecting all these ingredients in the ecosystem, not only competitive action, but consumer behavior. How about um, the media in that ecosystem? How about other, other markets and how they're behaving? You can see that collective insight becomes like I'm getting, I'm getting the chills (laughs) telling you about it because it becomes so informative. You, there's no more guessing anymore. It's 
it's so fun to build brands when you're not hoping that the client's emotions are triggered. You actually don't care if the client's emotions are triggered. Can you believe that? Yeah. The, you know, this executive is coming in here with their big check and you're sitting in front of them and you're like, so I don't care if you're happy at the end of this because I know this plugs right into the audience and their behavior. Right. And with that, so you you make you have that process, that framework to approach these different brands. And once you get more insights then from other brands, and as you learn more and more things, how do you go back and change the you know the protocols or how does that evolve then over time? Good. So we're called innovation protocol because we really do believe we're the protocol for brands that innovate. Organizations yeah. that are changing the nature of their category need process. Why do they need process? Well, because they make stuff and you can't just muck up their making process. you got to consider the inputs and outputs. Or there's a buyer marketplace. There's a place where buyers buy and you can't just reset it, right? So the protocols are necessary to bring real value to an organization. You don't want to just slap on a logo. You really want it to have meaning. And so if we didn't evolve with the way that the markets advance, um, it would be on us. So for example, um, social media was a platform for consumer brands for most of its history. You can imagine that most of the campaigns you saw in social media came from brands trying to sell you soda pop or bubble gum. Right. Well, interestingly enough now, so many humans are in social media every day that many of the campaigns have nothing to do with you or a consumer life. They're trying to sell buses to the LA Metro buying person. You know, how many people are buying fleets of buses? Not that many, no, no. but you know what? <laughs> They're hard to get a hold of. And they are on social media somewhere, yep. somewhere. And they probably clicked on a few different things that have to do with transit. And so we're living in this new era where the protocols are even tighter. The protocols are even faster. You can be more meticulous and more attuned to your audience and their communication behaviors. And so that's actually helped me stay fresh, keep the protocols fresh and not be stuck in some, you know, the way that it used to be done. Let's yeah. say the root of routine where everyone says, well, back in my day, we did it this way. And you're like, well, your day doesn't even exist now. We don't live like that, communicate like that or act like that. And so I've evolved the protocols to consider contemporary behavior. And, and I'm just curious from a really curious perspective, how was that change from, you know, pre-social media to then that you can get all these insights? Facebook has every insight on you, which is ridiculous as just Google. Sellable. By yeah. the way, it's ready to be purchased. Oh, for yeah. sure. And I've, yeah. I've, I've done like pay-per-click and I also use Facebook ads before for e-commerce companies. So I understand how much data you have on people. How was that change in as your, your career, I guess, as that kind of evolved? So I started this company in 2006. Okay. So you can hearken back. I mean, that was a different time. You know, iPhone had just come out, yeah. right? Brand new platform. People weren't accustomed to being on the web all the time, right. you know? And uh, I distinctly decided that I knew that I was not going to out-market my biggest competitors. You know, I have 25 coworkers. Many, some of my competitors have 25 offices. Okay, So I knew I wasn't going to out-broadcast them. And so I recognized that if I participated in the digital channel before they did, that I would be able to create a, a mark. And so, for example, I've been on Twitter since 2007, been an active user of LinkedIn since its origins. I had an early invite. And I regularly posted and participated. I regularly advocated for people when they got promotions. If I saw clients were doing cool things, I would comment in the public domain. And honestly, for my first few years, everyone thought it was a joke. They were like, come on, Strauss, you call that business development, please. You know, we buy booths at trade shows. That's how we get customers. And I'm so happy to report that one of the ways that my bootstrapped startup 
survived its first three years is that we grasped social from the beginning. And we knew that you go where people are listening and people are listening on their own volition in these channels. And so what has that done for us full circle? Well, we were doing competitive analyses online in 2006 before people realized that, wow, public companies are posting their annual reports online, why not go scrape the 25 that are selling to your current customer and get a sense of what they're saying and doing? And so that was so groundbreaking. I distinctly remember um, we had these really big clients, you know, people that had heard of us and heard of me. And so they bought services from this startup. And we walked into a room and we just printed out articles we had found online. We just created this room, which was kind of like an immersive experience of content, but print. Yeah. And they're like, oh my gosh, how did you get the order form from that competitor? Or how did you know what the customer service phone line script is? And, you know, <laughs> we had to like smile at them and be like, it's a new time. This content is accessible. And if you can organize it and audit it, you will be powerful. Yeah. And so I have just relentlessly made that a part of how we study. Yeah. And then digging into, like you mentioned, the first three years and little struggles with that and people, how they view you. From the entrepreneurial perspective, why did you start the company? I decided to start your own company. I actually did really well working for other people. So I sometimes you hear from entrepreneurs and they're like, I couldn't work for someone else. And, you know, you call my bosses, we kicked ass. We had great success together. Yeah. But I also was a progressive person. So when a company got stagnant, I was the one who was like, well, if I'm not learning here every day, then I'm going to ask myself this question, am I learning every week? If I'm not learning every week, am I learning every month? And when I'm not learning every month, then I'm going to look for a new job. And so that's basically what ended up happening is that as, as I spent time in different businesses, I pursued advancement. Now, if you're asking me like on record, why did I start a company? I started a company because I was doing nonprofit work while working for a for-profit agency and it caused conflict. They were unhappy that I was using our premium services for free. For, yeah, nonprofit, yeah. So that's when I started Innovation Protocol. I moved into a buddy's condo, back room, rented a room, slumming it. You know, my office was my bed, which was, you know, where I ate. And basically, I decided that if I can't be a brand practitioner, a brand strategist, and give 10% of my time to nonprofits, then I don't want to be a brand strategist. And we're here 25 people later and $50 million in business done. Yep. And how has that all been done? We've done it by giving away 10% of our time to, to nonprofits. Always. And I've seen so yeah, some of the, I think the people you've worked with on your website. And it's like, oh, wow, it's a lot of different companies. All kinds of nonprofits. <laughs> I mean, stuff ones. that has nothing to do with us, stuff that has a lot to do with us. Yeah. You know, and that's what's also so good for us. You know, being a brand builder requires mind stretch. We talked about it earlier, how you kind of have to be aware. But yeah. what's so nice is going to go work on a religion that you are not, you know, working for a, advocating for a community group that you are not a part of. Right. And like I said earlier, getting emotionally involved in the process to the point where you're feeling what it feels like to be that community. And that's what keeps you sharp as a brand strategist. And, you know, knowing all you know about brand and working with all these different companies, how do you view and approach your own brand then? Because your company is obviously a brand, but then you also work with other brands. So how do you approach your own brand and how you grow that? You know, I, I think I have two answers to your question because we're in a time now where people don't just want to know what a company is. They want to know who's running the company. Yeah. Right. So this company needed a figurehead, a representative, and that's been my role from the beginning. But I have had administrative roles, head of finance, head of operations, as early as I could afford it. Sure. So just being the owner of this company doesn't mean that I am in charge of all kingdoms. I am very focused in what it is that I do. I am a practitioner of brand strategy and I'm the chief believer here. I 
motivate people. I work on projects with them and et cetera. But back to your discussion, um, when ultimately starting the business, I basically had to figure out that um, there's a market for brand strategy. There's enough people doing it. What is it that I could bring that other people could not? And I'm actually so happy that we're having this conversation this week. My colleague who runs operations was just back from a conference in Europe where he met with other brand strategy consulting firms. Oh, really? Yeah. And so here I am, 13 years of me guessing, and I'm on record. Here we go. First time I've ever said this, okay? I believed year one that we were going to win because we would be able to do that deep dive analysis that I mentioned to you. Remember how, my, how emotional I was? Yeah. If I didn't have an answer, I believed that I couldn't fight for it. Right. So we built a robust research component to all the work that we did. Yeah. I believe that was necessary and important. I was told by competitors that's a waste of time and money. Okay. Second thing is that there's plenty of great ideas in the world. There are very few people who can communicate them. And so I initially, employee one said, every single one of my, co- my coworkers has two goals, to be in Toastmasters as a public speaker mm-hmm. and to learn to build PowerPoints that kill. Now, so my co- <laughs> my coworker comes back from this conference in Europe where he's meeting with all of these competitors who are all coming together to learn from each other. And he comes back and he says, Sash, dude, I got to tell you, I know we do things in a special way, but I'm here to report our research, bar none, just 5x anything I've seen from a competitor. Second, our ability to deliver the ideas, present them in an articulate and passionate way using tools and voice. No, I couldn't, I, there, I wouldn't even put someone in second place. And I know this because when I was trying to position this business, those were the things that I happen to be good at. I happen to be good at voice. I happen to be good at building PowerPoint. And I did the research to protect my heart. And so here we are 13 years later, learning that those things are really what has helped us grow and thrive and create a differentiated value. But all I did just tell you about was two things that made my employees great at what they do. Yeah. Communicate their ideas, back them up. Yeah. And with obviously working, working with brands and then growing the business itself, you've done a lot of like public speaking everywhere. So how much of it is, you know, there's smaller percentage, of course, growing the business in that capacity, but also doing the work. How does that fit into what you do. Thank you for kindly re-asking the same question, which is how do I manage a personal identity and a firm identity? So I promise that they're all completely interlaced and contribute to one another. So I don't do three separate jobs that have nothing to do with one another. All three of my jobs support one another. So for example, I'm a professor and I teach at three local business schools. All three didn't let me in when I applied. And it's fun (laughs) to have been teaching there for so long now. And what's special about teaching is that these graduate students are on the cutting edge. You can imagine they're living their lives, digital natives. They're in new roles, doing new things. And so I get that direct exposure. That keeps me sharp and good at my job. Let's call that one value of teaching. Right. But a second value of teaching is that inevitably, if someone's getting a master's degree, they're on an upward trajectory. They're climbing ladders. And so my graduate students from seven years ago, I've been teaching 13, some seven years ago are already executives at big companies. So one mechanism for business development for my firm has been teaching. It's kept me good at my job and it's created a funnel of new business opportunities that are years out. Okay. Middle ground. How am I going to get customers in the next three years, not seven years, Three years, where are they going to come from? Well, not a lot of people do brand strategy. Even fewer talk about it. And so I've been teaching classes in like 
summer camps for kids as long as someone would listen. And then inevitably I got ranked up, ranked up, ranked up. And now I'm a for-profit paid professional speaker. And so I get to stand on stages in front of thousands of people who eventually could be customers. Oh, yeah. So where are my customers going to come from in the next three years? I guarantee you I got paid to give a speech on a stage. There was someone in the room and they're following up. Right. Okay. Long-term customers come from, excuse me, customers that are seven years out, students. Three years out, speaking audience. Where do they come from in the next six months? We actually have the data. They come from someone already doing business with us. We know who's going to pay us in the next three to six months is probably someone who's already paying us now. And if they're not paying us now as a current customer, they were or they know somebody who is. Mm -hmm. So that's good business gets more good business. And that's core to our business development. But you can imagine speaking, teaching, and doing good work creates a consistent new business pipeline that has enabled us to grow. Who am I in that equation? I'm the one who gives us the most speeches. I'm the one who teaches the most classes. But let me tell you, I make sure that my coworkers are teaching classes. Maybe they're guest lecturing. Maybe if I can't make a requested seminar somewhere, they'll go teach for me. So I'm super proud that all those Toastmasters have turned out to be great educators. Right. So many of my coworkers are now teaching. When it comes to speaking, I can only get on so many airplanes a week. So I say no. And what do they say? They say, well, do you know someone? And I say, do I know someone? I know someone that I would put in front of my parents. You know, let me introduce you to coworker A. Right. And so then now my coworkers are regularly giving speeches and presenting, creating a second generation, second tier new business pipeline. Yeah. All three of the things that I do, although they look independent, are basically for the same thing. Yeah. And talking to the coworkers a little bit more, in terms of growing your team and then even developing them, like what is the process you have in place for that in terms of like getting new people and when you want to have them and also like the onboarding slash getting them you know, up to speed with what Innovation Protocol does? It's extremely costly to onboard someone here. We're a people business. Honestly, if something happened to this office, we would still work tomorrow. So yeah. that's the point is that we are the business. Yeah. And so recruiting and retaining that type of talent that can create such value is extremely hard. Uh, my average coworker tenure over 13 years of running the business is f- almost six years. I also have about seven people who've been here upwards of seven years and some people who've been here 10 or 12. Yeah. yeah. So what does that mean? That means I absolutely put extreme care into every one of my coworkers. Now I'll give you small form care and long form care. Long form care is I let everyone know that I do not expect that we are going to work together for the rest of our lives. I know that they will go build their own business, go work for a client, but Hey, while we're working together, I want to do what's best for them and they want to do what's best for me. And so imagine if we both know that, yeah, that, you know, makes good work. Second is that this is a communication culture. So there are no like, animosities or skeletons in the closet. People are talking and communicating and sharing. If they're starting a business meeting, they start it on a personal note. And that creates congeniality and connectiveness between the coworkers. Another thing is that this is an empowerment culture, which means that day one, I don't care how junior you think you are, you are on client phone calls. You must talk on them. You're not allowed to be in a meeting or on a phone call if you're not talking. So everyone knows front and center. Those kinds of practices and behaviors get people to understand that this is the best chance they've ever had to grow. This is graduate school on crack. And so therefore you get a lot of co-passion, if that's a real word, where people are like collaborating and 
high-fiving in each other because everyone on our teams is basically on three to five projects at the same time. So they're interlaced and intermingling with other coworkers constantly. And when you know everyone's got your back and everyone's growing their careers and everyone has direct communications with the leadership, you kind of know that everyone has the same agenda. And it's so easy. It's so much better to go to bed at night when you know your coworkers are like in your camp, yes. in your favor, not trying to spite you or cut you or clip you from behind. Right. And with all your experience and the, you know, everything you've learned over time in the last you know, 13 years running this company and even time before that, you know, what are some of those things that brands are struggling with, not doing well that you typically see and how do you help them with that? Okay. So one thing that I struggled with, but I'm not struggling with anymore, it's kind of an interesting thing was when I said that I was doing nonprofit work 13 years ago, remember the raised eyebrows? Um, and everyone's like, what's the point of doing that? I mean, like... Be 65 and donate your money once you've acquired it. Like, don't give your money away now. And I was like, I haven't even earned the money yet and I'm giving it away. So that's not even the measure. But the point is that this is something that's beneficial. Doing nonprofit work, one, gives your junior talent a place to mess up and try. Yeah. Okay. That's one thing. Second thing is that nonprofit work makes great case studies. Uh, You can walk into the world's biggest companies and they can ask you to do a presentation. And when you do it on a nonprofit their hearts are melting. You do it on one of their competitors and they're angry. So you see that nonprofit is the ticket to sales. Third, who runs nonprofits? Powerful people. The boards are made up of the most powerful people. Mm -hmm. Another business development pipeline for us. So interestingly enough, doing nonprofit work, it's been really, really good for the business. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting paid regularly to help very, very powerful companies figure out what their charitable action is. Now, its moniker is uh, corporate social responsibility. We've heard about this a lot, but let's call it corporate consciousness, which is, all right, we're a company, we're making money. What good are we doing for the world? Now, it used to be that you could just donate. Ah, our company donated to the Susan G. Coleman Foundation and made our employees go for a walk. And the problem is, is that there was no relation to the business. And so unless I was digging, I wouldn't notice that. But we know now that talent, new talent, high-value talent will not work for a company if they don't know what that company is doing for the world. And so companies are having to figure this out. What do we do? And I have my answer for you. Same answer that I use for my business. The only thing that you can get full credit for doing is giving away what you make the most money doing. If you're automatic, if you make cars, don't, don't give away computer classes. Don't, um, I don't know, be in the tire business. Your business is automobiles. You help nonprofits secure and manage their automobiles. And that core craft given away, you get the most credit for. And so we're living in this new era where clients are now calling us saying, hey, I don't need an internal brand initiative. I don't need an external brand initiative. I need to know what is our brand about when we're saving the world. Can you help us figure that out? And that's been amazing. As we kind of wrap up, as I know you have time constraint as well, where do you see branding, brand strategy kind of going in the next few years? How is it going to be evolving, moving forward? I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. When I started doing this work in the 90s, you say brand, at, you said brand at a party and everyone was like, okay, you know, call me when you get a real career. Do you realize that now it's everywhere? It's, everywhere. it's everyone's method. It's everyone's voice. It's everyone's topic. So to answer your question, it's finally so ubiquitous that everyone understands that it's a higher priority. But now there's a lot of bastardization going on. There's a lot of quick churn branding. Like, for example, you can uh, you could pay 100 graphic designers online at the same time to design your logo. 
Now, what do you, you're basically deciding based on your personal preference at that point, right. right? So remember I said earlier, what's the point of doing any of that if you don't know who your competitors are and how they're communicating and why? That takes a strategic assessment. And so what I am seeing is that the people who are doing short value, quick churn brand building, they're getting commoditized. They're basically, you know, the gig economy has commoditized their business. But the strategic assessment council and brand building at the top, that's becoming so valuable that the world's biggest consulting firms are acquiring brand consulting firms because they know that what does the CEO go to bed at night thinking about? Not HR, not finance. What is this organization worth to the world? And they know that brand is that key. So what I'm seeing is a proliferation of white papers, classwork. When I started teaching my brand strategy class at USC 13 years ago, you there was not another brand strategy class in the nation. I, I do not know a MBA program that doesn't host a brand strategy class now. Yeah. So it's evolved that way yeah. over time. And I, I think that's a good sign. I think it's it's finally time that people realize that their identities are 51% of their business. Yeah. And Sasha, we'll have to definitely talk again at some point uh, in the future, but where can people find you, you know, reach out to you or find out more about what you're doing online? Well, my favorite thing to do is this, these kinds of conversations. And so I'm happy to have as many of these as you like, especially if you have um, participants who dial in, make comments and say, well, what about topic X or what a topic Y? Let's come back and have those discussions. As far as being in communication with me, um, I'm on all social channels with just my name, Sasha Strauss, S-A-S-H-A-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. So Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, all same channels. Um, I tend to keep Instagram private. So in case anybody's wondering, that's usually for family and friends. But LinkedIn, I'm happy to connect. Twitter, I'm happy to connect. Awesome. And I'll be sure to link that all up in the show notes. Just go grind.com slash podcast. Check out Innovation Protocol and all that Sasha's doing. Thank you for the time today, Sasha. Such a pleasure. And I look forward to the next chat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.